I'm Casado Bowman. Today, my guest is Chef Anna Gordon. She joins us from Brooklyn, where she's founder and chef of The Good Batch. Chef Gordon started out selling cookies at the Brooklyn Flea back in 2010, then launched her bakery, and most recently created a line of ice cream sandwiches sold in markets on the East Coast. We'll be discussing the journey to pregnancy while running a thriving business. And if you want success, you need to pursue happiness. Many people chase achievement, assuming it will lead to well-being, but a new idea argues they should reverse that order. Plus, achievements happen when focus is front and center. Chef Gordon weighs in on what it takes to implement focus in life. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, have you eaten yet? This could be a meal from today, or it could be a meal from any time in your life that you have a really great memory about. Well, hi, Casada. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and jumping in, I will say um, I really am a breakfast person. I always have been. It's a bit of comes with the territory of being an early riser. And um, one of my favorite breakfasts is a really hearty toast. And so I make I make bread for our family. It's something that I started doing during the pandemic, and I've just stuck to it. Um, and so I make a really um, fantastic multi-grain sandwich bread that me and my girls eat. And so I make a, a toasted thick slab of that. I put seed and mill tahini on there with Greek yogurt, sliced apples, and granola from the Good Batch. And it's just it's just so satisfying and it checks all the boxes. Um, so that's, that's often my go-to breakfast and it just gets me going. Wow. That sounds so nutritious and like you said, satisfying and year round too, when you described all the different ingredients. Yeah. Just change out the fruit for whatever's in season. Um, sometimes I do peanut butter instead of tahini, but yeah, it just, it's all the, the protein. It's got the sweet and the salty. So yeah, I really like it. <laughs> and I know you're a baker, but for your average Joe listening, you know, we have chefs and we have people who are just admirers of the industry. Um, what's the preparation like? Is it easy? Is it hard? You know, for the average person, when do you typically make that? Is that like a Sunday night for the week or... Oh goodness. I mean, well, the bread itself is a is a bit more intricate and requires some some prep ahead of time, but if if you're not already making bread, it just um, you know, get I whenever I buy bread um more artisan bread, I try and buy it unsliced because I personally like really thick slices. So just your the the best bread that that you can buy, thick it uh slice it thick put it in the toaster. And then I just make it standing at the kitchen counter in the morning with my kids running around. There's, there's little to no prep other than just having the ingredients in hand. <laughs> yeah. And I love that also because I'm thinking us in the industry, um, oftentimes, and I try to catch myself every day, you know, during family meal. And I, 90% of the time I still stand while I, you know, during family meal, are you standing while I, you're eating? very comfortable standing while eating. Very comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe dinner, I'll sit down, but I'm very comfortable um, having a bit of a sway and movement mm -hmm. while I'm <laughs> eating, certainly breakfast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, let's jump right in. You started your company back in 2010. Take us back to that time when you're selling cookies Mm -hmm. at the Brooklyn Flea. I want you to describe an average day in your life back then. This is before kids. This is you out taking a chance in life. Also, just kind of (laughs) sidestep, what was the food scene like for you, at least according to you, in Brooklyn back then? Mm, Yeah. So to kind of, I guess, answer in reverse order, the food scene, I had been living in New York City at that point for about three years, three or four years. Um, And it was post-recession. So things were a bit in turmoil. Like there was, there was money, but it was in, in weird places. Um, the Brooklyn restaurant scene was just starting to kind of overtake Manhattan in terms of, of like cool, cool new things happening. Um, there was, a you can picture a lot of like wine served out in mason jars and craft paper was everywhere and twine. It was very rustic. Um, it's not to say that was everything, but that was definitely a theme that was going on at the time <laughs> in Brooklyn. Um, and the Brooklyn flea had just been around for uh, a, a very short number of years. Um, and at the time it was just at the high school in Fort Greene on the flat, on the blacktop every Saturday morning. So um, this is early stages of the Brooklyn Flea. Um, and in 2010, I had just graduated pastry school. I knew I wanted to start my own business. And I sort of stumbled upon the Strope Waffle. And I, I, I saw an opportunity to, to cre- kind of build a business around this very unique to America cookie. Um, so I developed my own recipe and I started selling them Saturday mornings at the at the Brooklyn Flea, and and it 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 went really well. <laughs> I was kind of encouraged to carry on. Um, so that was the beginning. And um, at the time, as far as answering what an average day was like, I was still working full time in a corporate job, and so I would work you know forty hours a week. At night, I was renting a kitchen space and making strobe waffles. I just constantly smelled like cinnamon and caramel. I mean, it was in my pores. And then on the weekend, I would sell um, all day out at this market. And then I, I guess on Sunday, I slept. I don't even remember at this point like what that looked like. I was, I was just, I was just a. Evolve, a revolving door of working and cookies and a little bit of sleep. <laughs> wow. Oh, beautiful. What, and you mentioned that you were also working full time. What were you doing professionally before baking? Yeah, I, um, I had a very brief career, um, as a, as a project manager. So I moved to New York city pretty much straight from college um, and I got a job at a heavy metal record label, uh, shout out to Roadrunner Records. And it was, it was a hilarious, amazing, like brutal, life-changing place to work, um, as a, as a young professional. Um, and so I was, I was helping, I was in the creative department and I would help get albums out. So, um, coordinating with the illustrators and the photographers to do the album artworks. And this was also right around the time 
where CDs were on their last legs and digital was coming on. So that was an interesting space to be in, in history, um, in the music industry. Um, but that was great. Uh, really, really memorable time there. And then I, and then I took those, that kind of project management production skills and I worked in advertising for a little over a year. And then I, my last job was at a, um, an education tech company, but the the common thread through them all was project management and like getting work done and helping projects move along, which has definitely come in handy all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the moment you mentioned pastry school? So what was that? You were working at the record label. Was there a moment in between different jobs that you said, let me go to pastry school? Was it a night program? Was it a year? Pro- what, what was that? Yeah, I was. So I, when I moved to New York, I just, I got this job and doing the thing. And I was just completely mesmerized by the food scene of in the city. I was researching chefs and restaurants and, and, um, recipes and I was cooking a lot and, and, this is all while working during the day. My, my, like this passion was starting to percolate in food. Um, and I've already, I've always like loved food and, and cooking, but not, I never considered it as a career. So yeah, flash forward to like 23 year old me, like doing my work and kind of not, not like loving working in an office, but I was loving exploring food and um cookies baking cookies were like were both a low-hanging fruit of what i could make at home but also i just love cookies i always have um and i've always loved baking so i was just spending my evenings baking all the time and i would bring in things to work and i was like more excited about the banana bread or the you know the the oatmeal raisin cookie that i was working on than i was about like pretty much any project that I was involved in at work. So, um, it was when I, when I actually got to my next job at the advertising agency, somebody just kind of said like, why don't you just go to pastry school? And I hadn't even considered it. And it was like this light bulb moment where I I was like, Oh my God, yes, that is what I'm going to do. And I had no idea what it looked like. My life looked like after going to pastry school, but it just felt like such a right and true path to take. (laughs) So you actually left your profession to attend pastry school or did you? Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) This is in the days where I was working constantly. So I would work during the day. Um, and then I went to school at night. I did, um, the Institute of culinary education. I did their, their full-time pastry program. It was just in the evenings. And so that was about nine months. And then, so yeah, I would just work constantly. And then, um, at at the end of the the pastry program, you do a, like a three month externship and I did it at diner and Marlowe and sons in Williamsburg. And so I was, I work, work during the week and then work in a kitchen all weekend, you know, like picking time and cracking eggs and just doing everything that needed to get done. And I was just so exhausted, but it was, I never questioned it. I never once questioned it. It was just what I was, I was doing and it felt right and um, yeah, exhilarating. And you're working off adrenaline because you're following your passion. 
Totally. Totally. I, I also have a very like acute memory at the time of thinking I'm very, um, there's a lot of lightness in my life right now in the sense that like, I don't have children. I'm not married. I have no real debt. I'm not, this is a time to kind of play and float and just soak up all the education that I can, um, and get as far as I can while I still have that lightness, um, which I'm incredibly grateful to, to have had, but I mean, I planted roots eventually, but at the time there were just no roots. And so I was just able to like, yeah, survive on adrenaline. (laughs) And that's a great way to describe it as a lightness and not many people or not all people can be in tune and feel that and to follow Mm -hmm. it. Right. Well, so we'll jump into a little down the road. You get married and at some point you now have the good batch and then Mm -hmm. your husband joins the good batch full time in 2013. And I work with my husband. We have a restaurant together. Hmm. I would love to know what was the process like for you to get to that point for him to take that leap and join you? Did he leave another profession? How did you both know that the time was right? Yeah. Yeah. So my husband, Steve Hartong, um, is a major player in the good batch. It wouldn't be what it was is today without him. Um, and he, we, we started dating in 2007. So he was, he was pre inception of the good batch. Um, and by, let's see, by the time he joined, so when I finished pastry school in 2009, 2010, he went into law school. Um, he had been working at the record label. That's where we met. We met at Roadrunner. I went to pastry school, finished. He went to law school really to just pursue higher education. Um, I think he just, he just had it in him. Um, he's really smart and analytical and, um, he was just very drawn to study law um, not even necessarily to practice it, but just to really to to further educate. And so, when he graduated law school, it was it was a bit of a tough market. Again, we're like a couple years out of the recession, but the 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 ripple effect is still there, and there weren't a ton of jobs, and he just wasn't finding anything that um, certainly that didn't rival the passion that I had for what I was doing at the time. Um, and so that was his landscape. And meanwhile, at the Good Batch at that time, we were, I, I should say, was, was just, was booming. I mean, we were, we could not make enough product. Um, we were starting to wholesale cookies to, to stores and I, I couldn't, I couldn't deliver them fast enough. And back at the Brooklyn Flea, which was now evolved to Smorgasburg, we were selling these ice cream sandwiches that um, were really good and very unique. Um, and we could not make enough of them. We would sell out to a line of like 70 people, like every weekend we were, I mean, we were making one to 2000 a weekend um, and it just wasn't enough. And, and also at that time 
we had just won the bid to be um, to run some of the concessions at Celebrate Brooklyn, which is the the Prospect Park Bandshell Summer Series concert series. Which, like on an aside, I'd been going to for years at that time. So that was a really fun, big achievement. And so we had all this, we had all this opportunity, and I'm doing this. I'm running it by myself. I have probably at that time like five or six amazing women that work for me. We're all just working so hard. And he's over here kind of figuring out what he wants to do. And 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 we both thought that him joining the business would be good for everyone. Um, turns out it was. It was a good decision. <laughs> but we just both really believed in what we were doing and and saw an opportunity for him to add value that I, I certainly didn't have in my own like toolkit. Um, but he, yeah. And so he was able to come in and really just expand a whole side of a back end of the business, logistics, finance operations that, yeah, is not my skill set. I certainly didn't have time to even cobble together anymore. Um, and so that was a real turning point in the business for sure. Wow. What a story. What did this new partnership mean for the business? How did it translate? Was it a was it noticeable immediately or a year later you guys looked at each other and go, "Oh my gosh, thank goodness you're here." <laughs> I think I think a little bit of both probably. Um certainly right away I was able to kind of like hand over keys to to a couple locks that I was just exhausted and didn't have time to manage anymore. Um, so that probably just lightened my load a little bit and was able to, again, get back into the kitchen and crank out this product. Um, so that was an immediate change. And then um, probably another... I mean, by the next year, we were, we were looking for our own space. So... And, and I he was invaluable in that. Like he, he's, he's, again, that's just like, he can think about numbers and visioning in a way that are not my strong suit. So, um, definitely as the business was about to take on our own lease and really build out our own space, like, yeah, he, he was instrumental in that. So, so yeah, I think, it was a huge change for the business. It kind of made it this little, it turned it from this little project that I was doing and it was going really well to a, a proper business. Yeah. 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 What about you? When did your, did you, did you start the business with your husband or did you one start at first? Yeah. So I, it was reversed. I was your husband. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I entered, but it was actually very similar to your husband because then we created what we wanted to together. And he needed that person to be alongside him. And, you know, he's a chef, right? So he needed that that person to execute with him, you know, it's, it's a part of execution. It's a part of business. I think it's a part of having someone support you and say, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I got, yeah, I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> cool. So in 2014, you opened your bakery and mm -hmm. you kind of touched on, you know, how influential 
your husband was in that process. But I'd love for you to go back to that time and break down the process. And again, when we talk like this on this show, it's uh, think of talking to a 20 something or or, no, it doesn't even matter. Let's, let's eliminate age. Mm -hmm. Anyone starting at any point you're speaking right now to another person, an aspiring woman who is a baker who wants to do this and is leaving a job and going and doing this. So, uh, try to be as, as literal as possible. So let's go back, you (laughs) know, it's helpful. So go back to that time and break down the process from idea to finding a building to lease negotiations, creating the concept, all of that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, let's see. So we, so we were outgrowing our space. We were renting kitchen space down in Sunset Park in what is now industry, industry city at the time. My goodness, it was a very different place. It was much less, uh, (laughs) polished then, but it was, we were in industry city, um, bursting at the seams. We were renting, um, from a, an amazing French bakery called Colson Patisserie. They were very gracious to us, but we were, we had to get out of there. And so the, the, to, so for your first point is like, what was the idea? What was the vision of what we wanted to build? Um, I think we started thinking kind of in the box that we already were. And so we were looking for commissary space. We were looking for just warehouse space that we could keep doing what we were doing which on hindsight makes sense. I understand why we did that, but it was, we just in, we visited a couple kind of crummy spaces and it was just defeating. And I'm like, this is not what I want to be doing for the next decade. Um, So it was another, a bit of a light bulb moment where we realized like, let's build a proper bakery, a storefront, a space for community and connection. Um, And so, yeah, we kind of like pushed ourselves outside of the zone that we were in. And so we started looking for more retail spaces, but it had to have a big kitchen in the back to, to, um, field what we were already doing, the business that we'd already developed. Um, long story short, we looked at a a number of places that we really wanted to, um, be in a neighborhood that, that we had a connection with. We were living in Fort Greene at the time and just kind of circling around that area and kind of like stepping further and further away from Fort Greene. We'd be very next door is Clinton Hill. And we found this space and it was, it was a carpeted office space that was split into. It was in no way um, a turnkey operation. It had nothing to do with food. It wasn't even a complete unit. Um, but Steve found it. I have to give him credit for that. He, he saw it, he brought me there and I walked in and I just remember just the feeling of like a complete vision. I just saw it. I saw it has these beautiful high ceilings and this glass facade and I could just see, okay, we'll put the, we'll put the the mixers there. We'll put the fridges there. This will be a wooden work table. We'll have the ovens in the back, a um, walk-in freezer in the basement. And this is where the customers will sit. I just, I can't describe it other than that. I just, I just saw it. And, um, and then, and then we, you know, we pursued it and we, we, we had never signed 
a commercial lease. We had just signed a, I guess we were married at the time. So we'd like already signed a couple rentals together and we signed a, a car lease together, but we'd never done anything of this caliber. And, um, and fortunately we have a really great landlord who we're still working with Yossi. And, um, so we, we did, we, we worked the lease out definitely in hindsight, we've learned a lot and we're prepared better for our next lease that we signed. But that was a bit daunting. I definitely recommend hiring a lawyer and and pulling all professional expertise that you have in your pocket. Um, you know, there's no shame in asking for advice or help. Um, so we did that, and then I I was actually working at part time. So Steve, meanwhile, Steve and I are both working like part time jobs because we can barely cover our salaries in order to pay for our employees. And I was working at a, I was a server at a restaurant in Fort Greene and the owner there helped. He shared with me the spreadsheet that he had used to build out his restaurant. So I, I was able to kind of use that and, and, um, and this is actually where like a lot of that project management skills came in. I made my equipment list and I think, I don't know, it was like, a hundred, a little over a hundred thousand dollars of like what we would need for equipment. And here's the, the rent that we should anticipate building up to like when we can actually like afford, um, like what's our break even in other words, um, what, how many employees, what we'll need, what are the hours that the shop is going to be open? I mean, just really like that was, that was the first business plan that I wrote. So at this point, we're now four years into running the good batch. And I wrote my first business plan, <laughs> which worked. Um, I didn't need it before. I was just kind of baking cookies and making as many as I could. But at this point we needed, we needed to get serious. Wow. Well, after all of that, the bakery opens. <laughs> so we get there. <laughs> the bakery opens. We did it. <laughs> what was opening day like and also the transition into the first two years? Any hurdles or highlights that stand out to you immediately? Um. I think I was too busy to be nervous, first of all, about it not going well. There was just failure was just not an option. So I kind of had that. The, the jitters were a bit naively um, super suppressed. <laughs> um, so I was just so excited to open uh, and, and start serving customers face to face because all of our other business had been like a bit detached. Um, so we, we opened and I will be honest, it was a bit, not what we expected. It took about two years for the foot traffic to really get to a place that, that we, we needed it to be. So, you know, of course there's always a bump when you first open people in the neighborhood are excited, but then it dropped and, and I don't think we ever got to a place where we were like actually concerned, um, especially because we have this whole, this whole wholesale business in the back. We were like baking every day and, but, but the, the front of house, that's what we call it at the, in our business, we call it our front of house was just really slow. Um, and it was, it was, 
so it plummeted after we first opened and it was, it was rising, but just slowly. And so that was a bit frustrating um, and had to work very hard not to take it personally or be down on ourselves, but instead more let's rise to the challenge and start and just do as many interesting things up there. Let's just make as many interesting pastries and cookies as we can so that even though we're not getting hordes of people in the door, we're at least doing something that we still believe in and, and let's act as if we are serving the masses. (laughs) Well, thank you for being so honest you know, not Mm. everyone is all the time. And you know, that is a very, very real account that, Oh my god, that story is what everyone goes through. We all go through that. Um, yeah. And so I'm glad that you said, actually it took about two years. Yeah. Sounds, sounds about right. (laughs) I mean, it's, you're changing people's behavior. If you think about it, especially, I mean, in every city, but I can speak to New York as we're so rooted in our routines. We have our rhythm. We know where we get our coffee, where we get our birthday cake, where on the weekends we want a special treat. Like we all have it. And I'm coming in here trying to disrupt that. And, and it, and it's just also at the time Clinton Hill was a, was not what it is today. And so there, it just wasn't, there just wasn't as many people around that, um, that that were interested in this. So it it took a minute. Yeah, but oh my goodness, it's it's uh I strongly believe in vulnerability and, and uh being very open about these things because there's no otherwise what are we get like there's I don't want to hold on to that shame and make it make it personal and then I take it out on other people, right? <laughs> it's interesting because I think about how you were actually in a unique place compared to, I can, you know, I can just compare it to a restaurant. So it's Mm -hmm. what, what are the other things that we think about? What are the things that stress me out when you're going through times like that? What stresses me out the most is my employees. I feel Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. do they have enough to do? Do, how do we, how do we float them? How do you know all those things? So the great thing about, what you were doing is you had that wholesale business. So they were busy. You had, you had the, the business to keep them busy every day. It didn't matter really. Yeah. You had to absorb that pain and that frustration. I had to absorb it. I, I definitely had some bored baristas, but to be clear. <laughs> and I was always, I'm like, even to, to this day, I'm like, bring a book. Don't bring out your phone. Read a book. Read, bring a book. Um, but I, yeah. So but to your point, yes, totally. We had fortunately um, a strong, just the kitchen was always busy. And, you know, going back to the start of like what that vision looks like, if I were to do this again, for instance, it's like, if I was going to start a business again, it just before making that initial investment in, in building out a space, it's so important to have a proof of concept, I believe. And, um, especially when you're dealing with so much money. So yeah, the, it, having, having that kitchen just cranking in the back was definitely kept us going. (laughs) And it keeps you going energetically. You know, sometimes I firmly believe in if the kitchen is cranking and your employees are good, that translates, that energy translates. It's so important. It's, it's everything I have. 
For better or worse, I, yeah, I have a, such a, my pulse is in tune, I feel, with, with the, the uh, morale of the team. And I think about it every single day. And sometimes, you know, if it's, if, when it's up, it's great. Everything's good when it's up. But when it's down, it's layered and it's not always so simple to fix. It's not always about money or attention or working too much or working too little. It's, it's, it's complicated. I mean, these are, these are people and, and they have every right to have feelings about their job. And yeah, you're yeah. To your point, it's like, um, I think a good owner, I think that's a good thing personally. Um, I wish sometimes I could turn it off just so I could like have a night out and without the guilt of something going on. But, but I care, but I, but I also don't want that because I, it, it's my, it's a responsibility that I've taken on and I am honored to carry it for sure. You have two young daughters, Roxy and mm. Josephine. But yeah. what I find so interesting is you actually found out that you were pregnant with your first child two days after <laughs> you opened the bakery. Um, oh my God. Yep. Wow. Yep. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so let's go back there. Yeah, that was a ride. <laughs> I would love for you to talk about both of your pregnancies, your first journey while launching your bakery and your second while running a thriving business. Sure. Yeah. Happy times. Um, so Roxy, I believe, I, I think it was two days before we opened. Oh, okay. And, and because I, I remember we had an opening party in the kitchen and I was holding this secret and like not drinking and, and everyone was so excited to be there. And I, meanwhile, like holding it together. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was with Roxy. Um, I found out I was pregnant in the midst of making this huge life change already. And, you know, going back to my other, other point earlier about having that lightness while I was starting the business, like this opening the shop was my first official like route down. Um, this was serious. This was a lot of responsibility. And so when this, this idea of a child came along it was almost an offshoot of that initial route. So it wasn't, um, I feel I'd already braced myself for intense responsibility and, and change in life. And, and, and this was like, well, okay. I mean, sure. Add it on to the, <laughs> add it on to the truck bed. We're already, we're already on the road. Um, so I don't think the, it, it was definitely like shocking. And, and as, as every woman that goes through it knows what that feels like. But um, I think I was in such a, a state of, of transition and stepping up in terms of like adulthood that it kind of got swept in. And, and then when we, when I had Roxy later that April, um, it, again, Steve and I had already built such a partnership of how to solve problems and handle things and celebrate things together that, we were a little bit conditioned as partners. And so being becoming parents was of course 
maddening and, and, and flipped our lives upside down. I'm not, and then we entered into the haze of parenthood. It was, we did all those things, but at least we had like a really good bond already. And I think that I'm very grateful for that. Was there a Um, distinct difference, like a very noticeable difference between your first pregnancy and second pregnancy when we're talking about this time in your life, launching and the business already in motion? Yeah. When I, when the second, when I, when I got pregnant with Josephine, we call her Joey. So we'll call her Joey. She, um, we were, we were like, we were, business was really good. We were doing, um, a lot of markets and, um, I was definitely more comfortable being a parent. I was comfortable being a parent. Um, and we'd figured out childcare a little bit. So a lot of that was less daunting, but anyone who's had another kid, it's not, it's not as if it's, it's just as easy. I'd say it gets about 15% easier. It's still, it's still a huge challenge to have another child, but yeah, like it's about 15% less, um, easier than it was on your first time. (laughs) And I always like to, when I'm talking to women, because I feel like it's often not talked about, um, was, did you have a conscious conception? Were you guys planning? What was that journey like? Were Mm -hmm. were there any losses? Were IVF, like Mm. anything? We, we were very fortunate, um, that I did not have any miscarriages, um, which I've come to realize is so common. Um, and, and so I was able to, I, that didn't happen for us. I got pregnant both times fairly quickly, um, which was great. The pregnancies, however, um, I, I had this weird, they were all good, except I had this weird thing for both of them. And it got so much worse the second time of this pinched vein, um, basically like from, from my midsection down to the tips of my toes on my right leg was just pinched the entire pregnancy. So by the end of a day, especially if I was in the kitchen was just purple, it was just, an exploding vein for nine to 10 months, um, which was pretty brutal. Um, but that was like the worst of it. And I had to get surgery after and it still kind of comes back and haunts me sometimes, but you know, it's the things that we do for (laughs) this magical journey. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it wasn't so bad. Um, and with Roxy, my first child, I took little to no leave after. I don't even, I th- I remember there's a photo of me. Roxy's like six weeks old. She's strapped to my chest and I'm making a wedding cake. With Joey, I was able to like plan ahead. We had more staff. We had some managers in place. And so I was able to take, I think I took about three months of not being part of the day to day. I was definitely still involved. I was still around. I would pop in, but I was not, um, I was not part of the day to day, which, which was, I think a big achievement looking back that we were able to kind of get to that place. Um, that's, and it made me appreciate the first pregnancy. Well, I would say that's a huge achievement for this industry because we're still figuring that out. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Just uh, taking time off, um, in particular 
for for leave um, for men and women is we just only need to be moving in the direction of of more of it for sure. Yeah. Have you had any um, women at your company take leave or were pregnant while working for you? Yeah, we did. We um, back before. Right when we opened, actually, um, in 2014, um, one of our, one of our, a member of our staff, Katie, who has since gone on to start her um, own bakery in Philly, she had her son Parker, and we gave her, you know, whatever. I don't remember what we negotiated, like at least six weeks. I hope it was more, but I, or in, with options for more, but we definitely gave her, that was very important that she had the time, um, to have Parker and be home with him. And then, you know, she was able to use her office to pump. And that was my, this was right. I think I was pregnant. Yeah. I was pregnant when, after she had her baby. So I was able to kind of watch her and take notes on what it was going to be like. So I think that allowed me to be a little more sympathetic to like, Oh, he's sick. I got to go all of a sudden. And Oh, there's this emergency. And it was a, it was a good um, precursor to what I was about to go through. And with, we have a lot of parents on our staff now. And so, you know, we always are very accommodating to that. And then um, another staff member, um, say to had a baby February, 2020. So she had a very long break before coming back. <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. Um, but little Sally is two and a half years old and I love when she comes to visit and she loves chasing my girls around. She's very sweet. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a part, it's such a joy having a staff that's having children and growing families of their own is, is such a, a deep joy that I was not anticipating, um, would be a perk, um, when I started this business for sure. And I think it's so interesting to talk about pregnancy in our industry because it's not often talked about as much as it could or maybe should be. Um, So maybe talk about, I'm thinking about if there are moms or soon to be moms or just women thinking about it, you know, in the future, Mm -hmm. you and then now two of your team have had pregnancies while working I think sometimes um, people think, oh, well, if you, you know, you're, you're working remotely, so you're fine, or you're working in an office, but oh, you're working in the hospitality industry, you work at a restaurant, or you work yeah. at a bakery, like, how could you know what you must have had to stop working at six months. So talk about that, like, how oh. the, the, the <laughs> physicality of it. Yeah, Um yeah, I mean, I can only speak to what I know. And what I know is being on my feet, it's long days, it's heavy lifting. And, and so each of those factors just gets a little bit lighter as we get closer. So for me, I worked right up until the end um, of my pregnancies, um, standing on my feet, I would just basically, I'd, 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 work all day and then come home and put my feet up the wall for like at least 60 minutes, if not more, which I still do not as long, but I still, I'm a huge proponent of putting your legs up the wall at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, so like the standing, but you just kind of get used to it. You stop lifting heavy things and that's why we have a team so that we can support each other. 
Um, you could, there's always a stool around if you need to perch. But I think, you know, as far as other women that might be going through this or, or thinking about going through this, I come aboard, come on down. Cause it's, it's, it's totally possible to do it, um, to have this type of career with children. And then when you're on the other side and you have these little kids, you get to show them so much. I'm like, how to use their hands, how to like math and measuring. And I think just the value of hard work and, and, and building and crafting and creating. So it's, yeah, there's, there's, I, if there is a stigma still going strong about not being able to have a child in the hospitality industry, I think that there's definitely many holes in that. And again, I can speak my own experience in the bakery life where the hours are more daytime and not late at night. Um, there's room for it. And, um, if you're already a baker, you're already <laughs> a, like a very hardworking person, um, who uses your body. So having a child, it's just, you know, it's just one extra thing to carry <laughs> for a little bit, but again, that's, that's speaking to, um, you know, a healthy pregnancy. And of course there's a hundred reasons why that, that can't work out. And so I, I, you know, let's acknowledge that, but, um, for my experience and, and the, the experience of the women that I've worked with, it's, um, and, and peers and friends, I have lots of friends that have had children throughout this. So it's, um, it's possible. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> well, we're going to fast forward. So most recently, you launched a line of ice cream sandwiches that are sold in markets here on the East Coast. And I'm fascinated, was that always a long-term goal or did the pandemic help create this opportunity and expansion? Mm. So this was this was a longer-term plan um, in works. When we when we built out our space in 2014, we brought on a principal investor who had worked in the snack and food industry in his career. So he saw these ice cream sandwiches that we were just making nonstop and saw that opportunity. Um, and we, we had that idea as well, but he had the money. And so he he kind of pursued, helped us pursue this CPG line, um, consumer package, good line, um, of, of taking these sandwiches to grocery stores. Um, and it took a long time to just work all the logistics out, but November, 2019, we launched and then the pandemic hit. hit. And I would, I would say the pandemic definitely, did not help. Um, it, it derailed it a bit only because the route that we took with our, with the launch of this business was we went with a really big distributor as opposed to a small distributor. So these big distributors during the pandemic are now having to sell instead of ice cream, they're selling frozen pizza and frozen meals, just like essential food. And so ice cream was still being sold, but certainly not the novelty products. That's what we call um, anything in ice cream form that's like in a bar or a, on a stick or anything or a sandwich. 
So novelty products were kind of squeezed out of the freezer aisle. And if they were there, they were big. It was a Haagen-Dazs, you know, just, just the hits. So the, the space and the excitement for small artisanal brands was just, was just pushed off the radar. It wasn't even, it, it just wasn't really happening. Um, not to mention we couldn't do in-store visits. We couldn't be like promoting the, the, the product in a way that we had kind of envisioned. So it, it derailed it a bit, um, quite a bit. And then, you know, and as we started to get our feet back under us and, and, and we were allowed, like the world was kind of like coming a little bit back to normal, um, we were just faced with other uphill battles. <laughs> um, and to speak on that, you know, it's just, I, so we're still, we're still running the product. We still have it out there. We're still um, working with distributors, but it's, it's, we've learned a lot from it and it's yeah, a big uphill battle. Um, the, the route that we take, we took, as I mentioned, is we worked with more big distributors which are selling to big grocery stores and it's just a tough game it's the 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 big brands really have a hold of the market and i'm not it's not even a critique it's just the way it is like these it's really hard to get into a freezer aisle as a small brand um just with the the way that like slotting fees and buybacks and shelf space. It's just, it's just a really, uh, it's a cutthroat market. And, um, we were fortunate to have people that our investor had brought on that, that are, that are from that industry and helped it. But it was at the end of the day, it's still, it's a very high end expensive product that, um, that, we are still trying to find a place for, if you will. That's so fascinating because I completely thought it was going to be the opposite. <laughs> I wish I had a different answer. I wish I I was like, oh yeah, no, it, it went great, and we're we're soaring with it. But no, it's yeah, no, it it just um, it didn't go quite as we, as we wanted it to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just thought, I just looked at ABC. Oh, they were so, uh, they I mean, synchronistic. They were ahead of all of us. Mm. Like they had a product during the pandemic that people could buy, you know, when the bakery maybe had to close. Oh. Like I just assumed all of these things. Goodness, I wish, I mean, I, I will say in New York city, in the smaller, more boutique artisan grocer, space, we have had success selling it. And kind of to your point, like people are home more, people are shopping at grocery stores more. This 15 minute um, delivery service has been really great for the business. Like, so in those spaces locally, they're doing well, but it's, um, but on the larger scale, in order for us to break even on the operation, we need those big distributors. And that, that game has been really tough, but locally, doing great. (laughs) Um, and in the pandemic, we, we were, it just, it helps to be really scrappy. And so like, I was just in the bakery. We, we had to let everyone go, which was 
devastating. Um, I never thought I would just sob in front of my entire staff. And I did that. Um, right before I told them they, they were unemployed. Um, and so we, as we entered into those dark days, I was just coming in on my own, gloved, masked, terrified. And I just baked off every single piece of cookie dough that we had. And I kind of relaunched our online store and was sending them out. I created these quarantine care packages for sale. And so I was just shipping cookies all over the country. I haven't worked that hard since the beginning of the business. (laughs) And then we were able to um, slowly let customers back into our store, but we technically never closed. And that's what got us through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. how did you know when this investor approached you to say yes to that? Mm. Um, I think it's something because we, we believed in it too. We, we thought it was a good idea. Um, you know, I think in hindsight, we could have done things differently. We could have arranged, set up that operation a little bit differently, but it just, it was a good idea. Um, to going back to proof of concept, we have the proof of concept. Um, but again, it's a, it's a very, it's not a cheap product. And when you're at the grocery store in the freezer aisle, price definitely plays, plays a, a part of decision-making, um, so yeah, no, I just, I believed in it. I still do. And I still, um, look forward to moving that operation forward. Um, but it's definitely a bit of a, almost like a side project to, to our day to day in Brooklyn. I, I guess I was looking at it more asking from the standpoint of my husband and I get approached about Oh, you should open up here, da da da, you mm-hmm. know, and and uh and I'm very firm in my thought that what we have, like very grateful that I'm in partners with my partner, right? With my life partner. Like mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. grateful for that mm-hmm. and very hesitant to take on any partners other than that. Like it's a it's a hesitancy yes. that I have. So I'm wondering that mindset for you how did you know i'm i'm literally asking you like how did you know because i'm always like no no and that's a very very good instinct i think that's what i i and we're we're the same in in general we we approached this because we were already partners we were already he was already our investor and we had that relationship we had built up trust and this just seemed like a um, kind of a, a an extension of what we were already doing, and I I completely agree with you. We're, we're we get approached all the time for opportunities, but we're also very clear about what our goals are, and and so it's easy to say no because you're like, no, that just doesn't fit within our vision. This fit within the vision. We're already making the product. It it was ready to go. Um, so it just, 
it made sense. And, and we'd had that trust there. And he was already a partner in your business in the bakery. He was already a partner. Got it. He knew us. He knew what we had. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's the key part. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, let's step away from baking. I read that you like to start your day stretching, moving, and meditating. So wondering, what has your path to meditation been like? Have you always practiced or is it something that you learned later in life? Also, if you have one, what's your favorite meditation, mantra, or prayer? Great question. I, I've always been a mover um, and meditation which to me is, is not just sitting in still without making noise. There's a, I have a couple of forms of meditation, but, um, but movement and a routine of movement has, has been with me since childhood. I was, a, I was very athletic in school. Um, and so that just carried on. And so I've, I've almost my whole life, I have started my day with some sort of exercise and, um, yoga in particular, I have been practicing for over 20 years now. And when I was after between my two children, between my two pregnancies, I was just really, um, I found like a really strong passion for yoga, a deeper passion, I should say. Um, and really wanted to pursue just the whole practice. As I, as I've often said, I just wanted to swallow it up. I just wanted to know all of yoga. <laughs> and so I put myself through, I did there, a teacher training with Prima Yoga, which is here in Brooklyn. Um, just a really wonderful community and, and, um, studio. It's run by Amanda Harding and she's just, she's just, um, a glowing person. And so I, I did their teacher training and really went into it, not necessarily to teach yoga, but just to become more, to learn more of the ways of a yogi, if you will. Um, I thought, I just felt that that would bring a lot of enrichment to my life. Um, and so I did that. And since then I've had a really strong yoga practice at home. And so, um, due to scheduling in the pandemic and I have this crazy messed up knee. So I have like, I have like weird limitations of time and, and physicality. So I, I mainly just practice yoga at home on my own, on my own mat, following my own rhythm and, um, so yeah, my, so my movement practice now is just every most mornings of, of coming out into my living room and just kind of doing what my body tells me to do. And the meditation component, um, is definitely more recent. I, I've been practicing meditation now for maybe five years and I consider myself like a very beginner in it. I mean, it's an infinite practice. I want to be practicing it my whole life. And so probably the most quite literal practice of it is at the end of my workout in the morning, I'll just sit and, and, um, in stillness, um, no sound. And I just kind of focus on my breathing. I do have a couple, um, 
mantras that I, I'm, I, I love a mantra <laughs> I'll say. And when I'm meditating in, in, in that stillness, it's usually just all around like, you know, my breath, breathe in, breathe out patience, like practicing a lot of patience and letting go of frustrations, being in present, being calm, um, being loving. Um, so those are just some of the key words that float around my head when I'm, when I'm sitting on, on my living room floor. But, um, I think a more practiced form of meditation that I have is walking. I'm a big walker. And I, most days try to walk home from work, which is an hour. It's like a four mile walk. And it's through, half of it is through Prospect Park. And I always go specifically through the woods part of it. And just, and it's there in that space that I'm really just taking all my thoughts out of my head and organizing them and thinking about them and reorganizing them so that when I get home in transition into being a mother and a wife and, and as present as possible, I'm in a much different headspace, but walking, walking and thinking is a very big part of my life. (laughs) Being in nature is just such an important thing. Having some sun reach your face, just being out there is meditative in itself, right? Yeah. The trees, the trees rustling, and in New York, you know, you really have to seek it out. So, I do. I <laughs> I go to the woods. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very it's important. I get I get kind of an itch if I don't get get that. Well, <clears throat> Arthur C. Brooks writes a great column in the Atlantic, and his words often move me. And one of his recent columns focused on chasing success. He explains that if you want success, you need to pursue happiness. Many people chase achievement, assuming it will lead to well-being. And he argues that they should reverse that order. He says, quote, whether you are an employee or employer, It's a better investment to increase happiness at work and in life rather than simply trying to increase measures of success. What are your thoughts on this idea? Hmm. I'm a believer of that. First of all, I I love that. And I, I think I approach it from a slightly different angle. Um, what comes to mind is the way that we, what drives our business is, is our, our values. And I know that sounds a bit, a bit corny, but it, it's, it's a guiding light that helps us make decisions, much like having set goals, our values help us um, make sure that we're 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 following our passion. We're living our truth. We're we're treating people with kindness, and then happiness. I think is an inherent byproduct of living your values. So, for at the Good Batch, um, we have four: it's quality, community, accountability, and continual improvement. And if we are making choices that hold those up, then 
then we're sleeping well at night. You know, we know we are mm, um, making decisions for the right reasons and are therefore happy, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And I think happiness is, you know, it's a funny thing because it's really a bit of an emotion. It's an emotion that is is healthy and normal, but with happiness also comes sadness and frustration and excitement and disappointment and joy. And I think these are all emotions that I feel mostly every single day. I feel all of those at one point. Um, but, but if we are standing by what we believe in it's it's all about maintaining that balance so that we're open to um happiness and all of its friends um versus success and success is such a ambiguous term um that can mean so many things and and perhaps in this case it you know um, brooks is referring to more of a financial or status. And yeah, no, that's, that just, I, in my mind, look like it just, that's not a sustainable thing. It's, it's, it's more about finding, um, working towards, um, a steady road, a balance, um, a place where you're treating people well and you're, treating the community well, and you're serving, you're making a product that you believe in. And I think the rest follows that. I love your thoughts on that. I love the values, the beliefs, also critical, and also feeling all of those emotions. Like you said, with happiness comes sadness, comes comes uh, so many things. Oh, yeah. And to feel all of those things. Sometimes I feel like we're in a society where you know, take a medicine. You can't feel sadness. You can't feel this. You can't, it's, <laughs> it is all balance. You know, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't need to go micro dose it away or whatever. It's just like, feel all those feelings every day. That's part of this whole yeah. world and this whole yeah. just united, uh, it's part of life. It's part of living. It's part of being a human. And, and we, you know, you and I, we've put ourselves in a position where we've taken on great responsibility, including the livelihood of so many people. And we have to hold it together. <laughs> we have to hold it together. And um, what, going back to like the mantra, one of my, one of my, um, I wouldn't necessarily call, I don't know if it's technically a mantra. It's, it's, it's just a saying that I say to myself constantly is the only thing we have control over is how we react. And, you know, to your point of like, th- th- yeah, all the emotions are going to happen. All the things are going to happen. All the problems are going to happen, but it's our duty to, to just keep going and doing, do so with as much clarity and honesty and maturity and compassion as, as possible. And I think having, having that be the focus rather than your bottom line, although it's very important to keep an eye on your bottom line, I'm not taking (laughs) away from running a healthy business. But, but, um, but the human side for sure is it's my motivation more comes in 
in my in my team and in my community and and the products that we're making. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I love the how you mentioned will tie in, you know, during the pandemic when, you know, you had to let everyone go for a second, as we all did. Um, and you mm-hmm. you cried in front of your employees. You know what? Mm. That is part of the emotions. Let's all be authentic. Let's we can let out tears. Uh. We can let out. We can be happy. We can pop champagne when something good happens just as easily as we can cry and let that out. And it's all important. The, yeah. the whole circle of life and emotion is so important. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. It's all there. All there. <laughs> just because we're running the business doesn't mean we're um, excluded from from life emotions, um, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. If I say your thoughts create, your words shape, what's the first thing mm. that comes to your mind? It could be a time in your life, a favorite quote, anything. I'm immediately put in the context of being a leader in my business. So I, I say my thoughts create the roadmap and my words create the heart, mm-hmm. the spirit, the motivation. Cause you know, I can, I can come up with an idea, but I'm not doing it myself. I need my, my people to, to help me and, I think a big part of my job is, is words and connection with my team and, um, kind of giving them a reason other than just their paycheck to be part of that vision. Chef Gordon, you've birthed an idea, launched a business, opened a physical location for your bakery created a frozen food line for each of those projects to really take off. You need a laser focus. So I want to talk about focus, what it takes to have one and what it means to you. For me, I'll share my personal nugget of life wisdom Mm. when it comes to focus. Sometimes when we try to plan too much or understand how it will come to us, we might miss opportunities for those synchronistic moments to happen. So tell us about your experience with focus. Mm. Yeah. Focus is everything. And I, I kind of interpret that just more tangibly in the, in the form of having important goals um, or vision, whatever, whatever, word you want to use to describe it of just being, what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing here? Where are we going? What are we trying to achieve? And, um, at the, at, as we entered 2020, we did a bit of a, a big mental cleaning house because it was our 10 year anniversary. And so we were like, okay, we just, we achieved our goal. We got to 10 years. I'm we're supporting a family. We have an amazing team. We were, we're creating a product that we love. What's the next 10 years? And, and it took a lot of soul searching and we, we developed that idea. And now we're, we have a new, um, roadmap, so to speak, but each year since then, um, I'm, 
I love, I love a new year's resolution. Um, and so I've taken that to the business and each year we, we get very crystal clear about what our 12 month goals are and then break that down even more. Okay. What's our quarterly goals? What's my goal this month? What's my goal this day? And it's, it's within that space with, the values that I talked about earlier, kind of like on guiding it and guiding the decisions. It's if you have that in place, um, the focus becomes a little more um, uh, seamless. You don't have to really think so much about it, but then, you know, a cool opportunity comes a knocking. That's when you, that's when you um, kind of have to practice it and say, does this align with our goal? Does it align with our long-term or short-term? And I think that, I mean, you, you probably know that yourself. It's like the maturity, like every year you get a little bit better about saying no to things. Um, but yeah, focus is everything. And I am grateful to have a partner who is, is very diligent about keeping us on track um, because I'm definitely the more like whimsical, creative thinker of the two of uh, that's not fair. He's a creative thinker. I'm more of a <laughs> whimsical doer, if you will. And so I'm out there like, look what I made. And, and I'm so excited about it. And he's like, Anna, this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. And so it was cool. You should give it to your friends, but it's not part of, it can't be part of our business. And I'm always a little like, <laughs> disappointed. But then the next day he, I know I'm grateful to have had that reality check to, to kind of get back in here. So yeah, I live and breathe by our plans and our values yeah. <laughs> for sure. In the last year, what book stands out in your mind that positively impacted your life the most? Hmm. Um, I think two come to mind. One is a friend recommended. So the moth, um, organization, the storytelling organization, they wrote a book called how to tell a story. And I found that really helpful and fun. It was a fun read about like how to tell a story, which is great for personal life, but also in business. So just how to shape words how to create an arc, how to think about who you're speaking to, um, and not Babylon. Although as you, (laughs) as we've been listening, I still have a tendency to do that. So it's helped me kind of tighten that up a little bit. And then I also finally had a chance to read Native Son by Richard Wright. And I, it knocked me over. I know it's an American classic. Um, but I just found that book really compelling, um, had me doing a lot of thinking about where, where we're at as a society. Um, and what shocked me the most, I mean, that book I think was written in the thirties and forties and late thirties. Um, it could have been written today. You just, in terms of the, the subject and the cruelty, um, you know, we've evolved a little bit, but the heart of it is, is still ringing true. So that, that book really resonated with me. Hmm. on a couple levels. Hmm. By the way, you don't babble. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for your editing too, to, to, to keep, keep that true. <laughs> How do you continue to find inspiration each year? Hmm. Oh, I, well, I, I fancy myself, uh, a creative thinker. I, I, I've, I've, it's, a, I, I enjoy living a creative life. So I think inherent to that is I've just always got my eyes open to new ideas, whether it's at a restaurant, at a dinner, a bakery while traveling in an art museum, um, so just, so seeing other people's works of art is always very inspiring to me. Um, number one and number two is I have just an incredible network of other like-minded, um, business owners, pastry chefs, chefs, artists in my life that I am just, I hold very near and dear to me and, and try to, see and connect with as much as possible. And they're all doing really cool things. And I'm just trying to catch up and keep up. Um, And then I would say lastly is just my own work. You know, I put out a product, um, it does well. And then I, and then I get the urge to do even better. So, you know, one upping myself um, for sure, but in a healthy way, I think it's, it's not, it's not aggressive, but um yeah. And, and just being a business owner, a chef, a New Yorker, um, an appreciator of, of culture. It's just keeping my eyes open to all of that. What does your ideal future look like? Hmm. Honestly, more of the same. <laughs> I really, really love, love what we're doing. I love my life, um, in the, in the balance of having this creative pursuit, having the leadership component that I really, um, that I'm constantly trying to get better at. Um, I want to keep running this business alongside my, my life partner. I want to keep raising these girls and showing them as many, cool things as I can and teaching them in as many out of the box ways as possible. Um, I don't see us leaving New York city anytime soon. Um, but more tangibly we'll probably open another location in some capacity. I really want to write a cookbook. Um, and hopefully be able to buy a home somewhere in this crazy market one day. (laughs) But yeah, just I'm very happy with the the path that we're on. I just want to keep being inspired to to go deeper and and bigger with it. Mm. Have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry? If so, please describe the moment. Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, they happen all the time. And I think one kind of main tangible one is when back in 2012, when Smorgasburg opened, this big food market was opening, we were also just getting our ability to make all these ice cream sandwiches. So, so just that and be able to hit the ground running, have the market, have the product, um, and those took off instantly together. And then, 
a more constant thing is just the people that we've brought into our organization always come at the right time and um for the most part are just are just phenomenal enhancements to our operation and i I've, i'm just so grateful to have a team that some of some of the people have been with me the whole time since i began and 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 some come and go and but each person brings with them their own magic spark at the right time and and it's just you know keeping your eyes open to it and and to be able to receive that mm. <clears throat> a flow state also known as being in the zone is the mental state when a person is performing an activity and is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity, and enjoyment in the entire process. It doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention that you're giving the activity, and it's a euphoric feeling. It's during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak, and a sense of happiness flows through your body. For you, mm. it could be as you're baking, perhaps. I'm wondering if you've ever reached this state, and if you have, please describe your surroundings leading up to it and what it felt like being in that state. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful to say I've, I've been there many times and it's, um, that's such a great, I love that, that, that description you just gave it. It, it really ties it up. Um, I think what comes to mind is when I, um, I'm doing a product development of some sort. So I'm working on either a single product, but more, I'd say the flow state comes more for me when I'm creating a collection of things. I seem to have a knack for that. Like, so for instance, this past spring, I redesigned our whole cake menu at the bakery. Um, so we sell a lot of layer cakes and celebration and birthday cakes. And I, the menu was many years old. I was uninspired by it. And so I kind of started with a clean slate and I entered into this R and D phase, like underestimating how much work it was going to take or really how much I wanted it to be different. Um, so I was a little bit like knocked off my guard of how, like, as I entered into the flow state, I was not expecting to enter the flow state <laughs> and I did. And, and just for about six weeks, I'm completely consumed by, uh, frosting and decor and little details. It was all I could think about. Um, in my walks home, my, my walking meditation was just completely seeing it and organizing that in my head. Um, I, I'm, I'm a really avid reader and I usually read at night before bed. And instead of reading, I was like sketching things. It's, I mean, it's great. It can be, it's exhausting. So I'm grateful that I don't live in that space. Um, I'm sure that there are people that only live in there and that just sounds, just sounds so intense. And then I'm sure there are people that haven't reached it. And so it, you know, it's a spectrum. And so I'm grateful to, to enter at once in a while. And, um, I kind of see, I, I try and always be open to it. I kind of see it as like, you know, being, it's a little bit like surfing, like you're out in the surf and you're, you're on your board and you're just kind of watching the waves roll by. You see some opportunities, some waves that come that are not the right ones. You have to let them go. But then when you catch 
the right one. You just ride it all the way. And that's, that's flow state to me is just staying in it. And then nothing feels better when, when you, when you get out and you look back and are um, proud of, of what, what's happened. What is your, what is your flow state most recently that you've been in? I'm in it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, true. Happy to be here with you. Happy to be here with you. <laughs> well, we're at the end. We did it. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, evolve, and encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey, or general life advice that you live by. Hmm, yeah. Um, two things come to mind. One is it's such a cliche, but uh, to say like, don't take things personally. Um, or, you know, you got to have a thick skin in this business. But, but I interpret that and my husband and I live and breathe by this of we have, we have a goal, we have plans, we have things that we're working on. It's such a waste of time to be derailed by things people say to us or things that could be interpreted as offensive or, whatever. And, and even if something, um, something is maliciously told, it's not even personal then it's their own mess that they're their own insecurities that they're just projecting on. And I don't have time for that. I don't need to be tangled up in that. Um, and also just inner, interpersonally between the two of us, if one of us says something that triggers the other. It's just like, let's move on. Let's, we all want the same thing. So just really trying not to get wrapped up in, um, in things that could be taken personally. It's just not worth the time, especially if you've got somewhere to be and something to do. Um, so that's, that's one. And then my second one kind of goes back to my, my network of friends is don't be afraid to befriend your competitors. Either having a network is invaluable um, in this. I mean, def- I can speak for food. I know that for sure. But just owning a business is terrifying, and it can often feel lonely um, and scary and defeating. But if you have a network of people that you can go to to just check in, and they're going to cheer you up, it's 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 everything. And um, even if they are doing the same exact thing, and you're going after the same customers there is a space to find connection and, and compassion. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful to have that. And I strongly encourage others to go find it. Mm. And uh, those were two great ones. <clears throat> and I'll piggyback on both of them. The, to the first one mm. is generally keeping in your mind to protect your energy, you know? Ooh, yeah. I'm, I'm learning that. And don't look behind you. Just continue to move forward and protect your energy. And to what you just said, the second one, if you haven't reached that point, or maybe you're, you know, an introvert and you're not ready to reach out to people, um, listen to this podcast. 
if you're in this industry and, you know, every single person that has been on here is a real genuine person. And, you know, we're about to end it with Anna and ask for her contact information, but we do that with everyone. Mm -hmm. And you all are open. And I encourage any of you, you know, Anna will talk to you as well, you know, like, if listen to this podcast, feel the connection because the connection is real and these people are real and you can reach out to them and they are genuine. <laughs> so a hundred percent. Yeah. So to that effect, where, where <laughs> how or how, funny. you know, is the best way for Hit people to up. connect with you and get in touch with you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I love, I love passing on, you know, lessons and little tips that I've, I've, picked up and asked from other people. My goodness, I've, I've been, I've been consuming other people's wisdom this whole time. So I'm happy to share it. Um, so either email or Instagram, my email is Anna, A-N-N-A at thegoodbatch.com or my Instagram, just DM me through chef Anna Gordon, and I'd be happy to connect. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening. And if you haven't already, follow Have You Eaten Yet wherever you get your podcasts.